Welcome to Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last episode, we saw how Jesus, despite being the Messiah and the Son of God, has to join a radical movement to launch his own messianic mission. In this episode, we will see that before getting on with his messianic work, he must first complete a sort of vision quest. He must pass the test, so to speak, before he is ready to take on the challenges that lie ahead. In this story of the three temptations, he must prove that he is worthy of the title, Son of God. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 7 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. On the one hand, Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. On the other hand, Jesus is a peasant. His genealogy is a joke. See episode 1. His family narrowly escapes being slaughtered by Herod, and he has to join a movement already in progress to get his own start as Messiah. And now he will have to pass a series of three tests or temptations. The Greek word in this passage can be translated either way. He has to pass these tests before he can proceed with his mission. He has to demonstrate what sort of Messiah, what sort of Son of God he will be. Let's read the passage. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, and he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Immediately after being baptized by John, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So this is not Jesus' own initiative. It is something that God seems to require of him. He fasts for forty days in the wilderness. The imagery of fasting or being hungry for 40 time units 
in the wilderness should remind us of something. The original Jewish audience of Matthew would have immediately thought of Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, a time of testing or temptation, and a time when they complained of hunger. Jesus is again reliving Israel's history. We have already seen Matthew present Jesus as Israel when in his infancy, Jesus goes down into Egypt and comes back up out of Egypt, just as Israel does in the books of Genesis and Exodus. Matthew even connects the dots for us when he cites the prophet Hosea's statement about Israel to describe what Jesus and his family have done. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. The original text from Hosea refers to Israel, but Matthew applies it to Jesus. One meaning, then, of Jesus as Son of God is that Jesus is Israel because Israel is also the Son of God. And here again we have Jesus as Israel. Just as Israel is tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus will be tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel's first test is how they handle hunger. That is also Jesus' first test. God tests Israel to form it into a particular kind of nation. This seems to be how Jesus is being tested as well, to see what kind of Messiah he will be. In fact, Ched Myers, a New Testament scholar who has studied this passage, suggests that Jesus, through his testing or temptation in the wilderness, retraces Israel's journey out of the Egyptian empire. Not their geographical journey so much, but their spiritual or psychological journey. In that ancient story of the Exodus, the Israelites are set free from slavery in Egypt and exit out of Egypt to find their own land of promise. Once free and out of Egypt, you might think that it would all be smooth sailing from there. But as the story continues, we find the Israelites facing new challenges, new trials and temptations in the wilderness. A big part of the problem seems to be that they still think like slaves. Free though they may be, Myers observes, they had nevertheless allowed the empire to get inside of them. After being freed from slavery in Egypt, they are faced with their first test, the test of being hungry, and the people react by complaining and clamoring to go back to Egypt. Exodus 16, 2-3 provides us with Israel's response to this test of hunger. Israel grumbled, Would that we would have died in Egypt as we sat by our flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. But you have led us into this desert to die of famine. The Israelites, these freed slaves, preferred their subjugated status in Egypt rather than the challenges of being free. Their minds had been colonized by the empire. Meyer suggests that Jesus retraces his people's psychological journey to correct where they went wrong. Meyer says that Jesus' journey into the wilderness is like a vision quest, a tradition among indigenous people. He writes, This is both a very real exterior adventure beyond the margins of society and an interior passage of cleansing. Yet the journey to or in the spirit world is also a sojourn through mythic time in order to encounter the story and destiny of oneself and one's people. 
So Jesus retraces his people's journey out from slavery in the Egyptian empire through this vision quest, through fasting and testing in the desert, in preparation to lead his people in the early first century out from occupation under the Roman Empire. Jesus' mission is to lead Israel in a second exodus, an exodus out from Roman occupation. But he cannot do this unless he has learned the lessons of the first exodus. For Jesus is not only Israel, he is also a second Moses. We have already seen in Matthew Jesus presented as a second Moses. In that same story back in chapter 2, where we read of Jesus and his family coming up out of Egypt, we saw not only Jesus as Israel imagery, but also Jesus as Moses imagery. Here in this passage in chapter 4, Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights not only recalls Israel's hunger in the wilderness, where they wandered for 40 years, it also recalls Moses fasting for 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai. Moses fasts while receiving the law. Jesus fasts shortly before he will give his new law in chapter 5 of Matthew. After each temptation, Jesus responds with a quote from Moses in Deuteronomy of the lessons learned during Israel's wilderness wandering. So Jesus is Israel. And Jesus is Moses. And each test or temptation represents something that Israel encountered during their wilderness wandering. The first temptation to turn stones to bread, as I mentioned earlier, is the test of the Israelites by hunger. The second temptation goes along with the first. When the devil tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, it is a test of the fear of death, a fear the Israelites faced in the desert due to hunger and lack of water. The third temptation, to worship the devil, recalls the Israelites' worship of the golden calf. Each test or temptation also foreshadows something that happens later in the gospel story. Let's look at the first temptation. After Jesus has fasted for 40 days, the devil comes and tempts Jesus to turn stones to bread. Now, this might seem to us like an odd temptation. Why would the devil feel a need to tempt Jesus this way? And other than that the suggestion comes from the devil, what would be wrong with Jesus turning stones to bread so that he can eat at the end of a 40-day fast? Well, to understand what is happening here, we need to understand why Jesus is fasting in the first place and who the devil is. Now, we may understand fasting as an individual interior discipline that serves a nebulous spiritual goal, but Jesus may have been fasting in solidarity with his people. There is some reason to believe that fasting could be done to deepen solidarity with those who are poor and hungry. Both Jews during Yom Kippur and Muslims during Ramadan include this as a reason for fasting today possibly reflecting ancient traditions. If Jesus were going to be any sort of leader for the people, this discipline of solidarity would make sense since hunger and malnutrition were widespread in first century Palestine. One recent study by Carol Wilson, a Bible scholar at Wesley Theological Seminary, 
estimates that more than 50% of the population in first century Galilee lived at or below subsistence level. Those who lived below subsistence level, she estimates about 25% of the population, were not getting adequate nutrition to thrive and were essentially starving. Given the Exodus motif of this passage and that Jesus appears to be retracing the Exodus journey of the Israelites who faced hunger, solidarity with the currently hungry Israelites would seem to be the obvious reason for the fast. Breaking the fast prematurely would mean breaking solidarity. Now, of course, Jesus is already at the end of the fast, so perhaps eating at this point would not be premature. However, using extraordinary power to break the fast would be doing something that mimics the powerful in his society. You see, a primary driver of food insecurity in ancient Israel was the greed of the elites. The ruling classes made sure not only that they had more than enough to eat themselves, they also stored up extra food for purposes of trade even diverting agricultural resources from growing crops that the peasants needed to sustain themselves to growing cash crops, since they owned most of the land. The ruling classes extracted this food from the peasants through rents and taxes, often paid for in actual crops, as well as through special grain requisitions to feed military battalions. Warren Carter, a scholar who specializes in the study of Matthew's Gospel, estimates that as much as 70% of local crop yield was extracted from the peasantry by these means in the area around Antioch, the location from which Matthew was likely writing. The result of these practices was widespread food shortages for the general population. In other words, the wealthy aristocracy had power to provide for themselves that the general population did not have, and this power imbalance was a source of great suffering for the people. Jesus, presumably, also has the power to provide for himself that others do not have. The question is whether he will act like the elites and use that power to provide food for himself. Is that the sort of Messiah or Son of God that he will be? Later in the story, on two occasions, he will use his power to provide food, but not just for himself. He will provide food for the people in two wilderness feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. So that background provides some good reason why Jesus refuses the suggestion to turn stones to bread. But the fact of who is giving the suggestion is not insignificant. You see, the devil is not just an evil boogeyman who tempts individuals to do individually naughty things. The devil in Jewish resistance literature of this period was understood to be the spirit behind the Roman Empire and other systems of domination. The book of Revelation was written generally around the same time as Matthew and reflects this idea that the devil gives Rome its power. Revelation 12-13 speaks of a dragon identified as the devil who gives power to a beast. The image of the beast is constructed as a composite image of the four beasts in Daniel 7. And those beasts, we are told in Daniel, represent four empires that dominated Israel. So the beast in Revelation represents empire. 
Since the book of Revelation was written during the period of the Roman Empire, the reader understands that the beast represents that empire. Therefore, the dragon, a.k.a. the devil, who gives power to the beast, is the spirit that gives power to Rome. That the devil is also understood in this way in this passage in Matthew can be seen by the way in the final temptation that he claims ownership of all the kingdoms of the world. That is a typical imperial claim. Furthermore, the devil introduces each temptation with the phrase, if you are the son of God. While son of God was a title that multiple kings and emperors in antiquity in this part of the world assumed, During the first century of the Roman Empire, it was most prominently attributed to the Roman emperor. Roman coins circulated throughout the empire in all the subjugated lands with inscriptions claiming the title Son of God for Caesar. So by introducing each temptation with the phrase, If you are the Son of God, the devil reveals that he understands that Jesus is a threat to Caesar's hegemony and that this threat is his primary concern. With that, let's proceed to the next temptation. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and dares him to cast himself down from there, so that the angels will swoop in and save him. The point on the temple from which the devil urges Jesus to cast himself down is one from which he would surely die if he hits the ground without being rescued by angels. The devil is tempting Jesus to demonstrate his power to cheat death. That is precisely why Jesus refuses to jump. When it does come his time to die on a cross, he specifically refuses the option of calling on angels, specifically 12 legions of angels to save him. You can read about that in chapter 26. Jesus will not call on angels to save him. Jesus will not fall for the devil's temptation to cheat death. The test here in this passage is a veiled temptation to avoid martyrdom, to avoid the cross. Again, Jesus refuses to do what worldly rulers do, what the Son of God in Rome does. Worldly kings and emperors crucify others. They do not themselves get crucified. They call on their legions to keep them safe, and to kill all of their enemies. And they attempt immortality. They try to cheat death through their legacy of building projects, including temples in which they will be worshipped. Jesus opposes temples, as we will see. And though it is a struggle, he ultimately accepts the fate of the cross. His hope is not in immortality, but in resurrection, a path to life through the cross, which refuses violence. He refuses to use his power to kill others and instead allows himself to be crucified. In doing so, he turns this instrument of imperial death, the cross, into a symbol of victory over the empire. As we will see, Matthew will present his death as a judgment over the powers that crucify him, the powers of empire death, and domination. So the devil tries one more time to tempt Jesus. This one seems like a desperate Hail Mary, to use a modern North American football phrase 
with intentional irony. The devil promises to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he will only worship him. We, of course, know that this will never work. It doesn't take a Messiah to know that you're not supposed to worship the devil. But that's sort of the whole point of this highly symbolic story. When offered power, many people will do the sorts of things that everyone who is not in that position knows are evil. The devil is the spirit of power and greed, the spirit behind empire and all systems of domination. It may seem obvious to those not in power that the powerful should not worship such a creature, but given the chance, unfortunately, many people will do just that if it comes with the promise of supreme authority and unlimited financial wealth. History is replete with rulers who have made this same devil's bargain. But it is not just rulers. Anyone in a position of power and privilege encounters essentially the same temptation, the same test, on a daily basis, including many of us in the so-called first world. We are daily offered more than our share of the world's resources. We are daily tempted with opportunities and wealth that those who struggle in the factories and mines around the world to make our way of life possible can't even imagine. And we can make a choice to grab what we can, or we can choose an alternate path. Imagine a hungry, dispossessed peasant being offered the chance to rule the world and to have and do whatever he or she wants. That is the offer being made to Jesus. The devil is offering Jesus a chance to be the king of the entire earth. Jesus' response is not easy. Jesus' refusal of worldly power means that he will go the way of the cross. He will later in the story be hailed as king, but he will be riding on a simple donkey, not a glorious war horse surrounded by chariots. And he will be riding that donkey to his death. Through these three tests, then, Jesus demonstrates the sort of Messiah or Son of God that he will be. He will not go the way of the kings of the earth or of the elites. He will use the power he has not to gratify his own desires, but to feed others and teach them to share. He will not worship or serve power and mammon, the golden calf, as his people did in the desert. He has traveled his people's journey through this vision quest, and so he is able to chart an alternative course. He will go to the cross to lead his people to victory over fear of death, and thereby over the forces of death and oppression. He will lead his people to resurrection and to liberation. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.